Just a warning that today's episode discusses murder, domestic violence, and intimate partner violence. Please take care of yourself accordingly. Tom DeKesey here, producer of the Starry and Decisis podcast. Before we begin, I would just like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Lekwungen, the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich peoples, the original inhabitants of this land whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. Today's podcast discusses the relationship between popular media, storytelling, and the law. While it is touched on in the episode, it is important to address directly how the media has been complicit in advancing oppressive colonial narratives about racialized people in general, and indigenous people in particular. False characterizations of indigenous people were used centuries ago to justify a manifest destiny and the expansion of the colonial project, and are still used today in discussions about the conditions of indigenous communities, the child welfare system, and the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women. This pattern of erasure, omission, decentering, and stereotyping in the media has oftentimes been intentional and malicious. We at Starry and Decisis acknowledge our role as storytellers and members of the media and aspire to tell stories that are thoughtful, meaningful, and equitable. While we may not always execute that goal perfectly, it is our hope that this podcast embodies a spirit of reconciliation and truth-telling. For more resources, please check out the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. If you've listened to podcasts for a while, there's a good chance you've heard this song before. For those of you who don't recognize it, it's a theme song for Serial, an investigative podcast that was first released in 2014. If you've never heard of Serial before, it's kind of the mother pod. Hosted by the journalist Sarah Koenig, Serial is one of the first podcasts to weaponize that nasally bookishness and hipster quirkiness that built empires like NPR and This American Life. Think urbane New York-based journalists talking about the secret history of tote bags while plucking strings play softly in the background. It's pretty much what I try to do on this podcast, but with a bigger budget. The subject matter of Serial, though, is a lot more grim and in part responsible for launching the modern true crime boom. The first season of Serial revisits the murder of Heyman Lee, a Korean-American high school student who was killed in Baltimore, Maryland in 1999. The podcast specifically revisits the investigation, arrest, and conviction of Lee's ex-boyfriend at the time, Adnan Syed. Syed was the prime suspect and was eventually sentenced to life in prison for Heyman Lee's murder. As the podcast revisits the case, however, Koenig begins to discover a series of critical mistakes by Syed's defense lawyer, inconsistent testimonies, an unreliable key witness, and the possible effects of anti-Muslim prejudice working against Syed. Koenig ultimately refrains from stating conclusively whether she thinks Syed is in fact guilty, but despite Cyril's lack of closure, audiences ate it up. Cyril quickly shot to the top of the iTunes charts and stayed there for months. The first season broke and set multiple download records, and today is credited by many as kicking off the modern podcast renaissance. Since the release of Serial, there's also been a boom in true crime entertainment more generally. 
all the way from podcasts to shows like Making a Murder and Tiger King. Barely a few months can go by now without the latest docu-series about some long-forgotten cold case or a headline-grabbing killing spree from the 60s and 70s. Weirdly enough, a lot of this fixation on true crime has come at a time when we've become increasingly aware of the problems with fixating on criminal behavior. Many news organizations, for example, have adopted a practice of not reporting the names or photos of domestic terrorists in an effort to discourage copycat attacks. There's also a growing awareness of how true crime entertainment might even celebrate the men responsible for the crimes while ignoring their victims, who are often female, queer, and or racialized. This past Halloween, for example, several stories were reported about men inspired by a recent Netflix series to dress up as Jeffrey Dahmer, a serial killer in the 1980s who targeted queer black men. There's also the question of the victims' families and friends, who are often re-traumatized by these media depictions that are created without their consent or involvement. For example, during the height of the serial craze, Heyman Lee's brother made a long Reddit post where he shared the trauma of having his sister's murder broadcast to the world. Other families of victims have told stories of pleading with producers not to broadcast the stories of their loved ones' murders to millions of people, only to have them do exactly that. Recent years have also seen the re-emergence of another kind of true crime spectacle, courtroom dramas. There's no better example of this than the recent Amber Heard and Johnny Depp defamation trial, which dominated social media in the summer of 2022. While the actual subject matter involves grim and often graphic depictions of domestic violence and abuse, the footage from the courtroom was shared all over Instagram and TikTok, often as a punchline to jokes or a way to encourage engagement. Canadian courtrooms don't typically allow the same kind of access to video cameras or broadcasting crews, but that doesn't mean Canadians haven't managed to get equally caught up in trials like Depp Heard, Kyle Rittenhouse, or OJ Simpson, just to name a few. Turning back to Serial, Although it was released almost 10 years ago, the podcast was back in the headlines in September 2022 after the latest update to Adnan Syed's story. After 23 years in prison, Adnan Syed, the convicted murderer made famous after the hit series, the podcast called Serial, chronicled his case. He walked out of a Baltimore courthouse today. <laughs> 23 years after being found guilty of first-degree murder, Adnan Syed walked out of a Baltimore prison to a waiting crowd of family, friends, and, as weird as it is to say, fans. Now, Syed wasn't quite a free man. A judge had simply vacated his sentence after Baltimore City Attorney revisited the case and found several issues with the way the original trial was conducted, as well as DNA evidence that pointed to his innocence. Prosecutors were given the opportunity to pursue a new trial, which they declined, although Lee's family issued an appeal of the decision that is said to be ruled on the next few months. For many watching, however, the image of a free Syed was a triumph for Serial and the true crime boom it helped create. For others, it was a painful reminder of the murder of a high school student and the closure denied to a grieving family. While on one hand the exposure brought by Serial to the problem with Syed's murder conviction likely played a large part in securing his release, it's not clear if that was the creator's intentions in creating the show. There's also the question of whether stories like Syed's are anomalies or justify the rest of the true crime genre warts and all. To learn more about this, I spoke with Rebecca Johnson, a professor at the UVic Faculty of Law and an associate director of the Indigenous Law Research Unit. Much of Professor Johnson's research focuses on law and film, with a specific focus on depictions of same-sex families, colonialism, prison, violence, and Inuit cinema. 
I spoke with her about the rise of true crime entertainment, its impacts on victims and families, and how it might change the way the legal system operates going forward. Here's some of our conversation. I guess kind of getting to my first question is, is do, do you maybe have a, have a sense of, of why there has been such a such an explosion in interest in that kind of true crime entertainment? Because I think when you look back, you know, there's always been um, there's always been legal dramas, whether it's like To Kill a Mockingbird or um, A Time to Kill, things like that. But there seems to be something like a new wave um, in, in the last decade. And, and do you maybe have a sense of, of why we've seen that? Yeah, there's, um, I like your raising of the question of genre, mm -hmm. because there are these different genres that we, we fall into um, societally. So for example, the true, even in our conversation here, so much that happens in popular culture focuses on law as primarily criminal law. So mm -hmm. when we're in a law school, we know like that's one course out of a, of, of a series of things. But when we head to the sort of arena of popular culture frequently people want to think about criminal law and crime and then we do have these two directions the i will call it the uh, sort of spectacular show trials of our time and mm -hmm. these show trials uh, we can go back in history and see the ways in which these kinds of questions of the big um, usually involving very public figures that that become part of the popular imagination though they did that in former times through newspapers but still hmm. like the that parallel of watching it the train wreck unfold in front of us is one thing and then there is this archival um looking to the past as a way of finding the truth of things um as you were talking one thing i'm kind of struck by so currently it's all murder killing murder 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 killing killing yeah very much. so so the those stories um, are doing a couple of things. One is, I think, why are they, why, why are they so compelling? Well, I think because they just like inject right into our amygdala. Right? So yeah. there's this way <laughs> in which it's like put in the feed, and they are gripping. They're compelling. They terrify. They horrify. They keep us. It is part of the the horror genre, right? For for us as humans, and you can find these kinds of accounts of the horrific things go back through history so stories of you know mystery war detectiveness trauma mm -hmm. you know they, they flow they slide backwards and they then um speak to our particular time like what the fears of the moment are they do tend to also uh, kind of replicate certain kinds of patterns in our society of presuming who is vulnerable and who is dangerous so there's mm. something else i think that they also do that we don't talk about as much but that is the ways in which they program us to continually have affect-laden feelings about vulnerability and risk mm -hmm. so they they both are entertainment but they also really reinforce certain kinds of social patterns in ways that pattern us to see risk and danger and vulnerability in the world. Mm -hmm. So often when I think about these shows, um, I like now this is now the law, we'll talk law for a second. In some ways, what they purport to be is about law. Like they mm -hmm. tell us they're about law, but they're really about something else. 
So they're fitting or filling into these other kinds of narratives of threat and danger, but they're uh, they're always fantastical, kind of like man bites dog or mm-hmm. super like. So it's, I'm not saying that people like that don't exist in the world, but the focus is on something very, very specific and particular. Yeah. Um, so for me, what's sometimes interesting to ask is if I'm saying to you, well, I don't think that's really about law. I think it's about something else. I think it's about creating a risk society or a fearful society that leads us to think we need protection, that we need policing, that we need forensics, that we need mm. people to help us sort out these terrifying things so that we can sleep safely at night. So the the um, the messaging is really one that creates in our imagine our imaginarium, as I would call it. Yeah. Um, the belief that we really live in a fraught, fearful, dangerous world full of people who can't be trusted, where people who look like friends are actually enemies, where you can't rely on anyone, where you're constantly at risk, and where we're kind of vibrating with the need to have closure protection uh, from a terrifying world around us. And that somehow Mm. science or like this uh, science will save us maybe, or the one super detective who actually breaks the rules in order to solve the crime will save us like the renegade kind of lawman. Yeah. Lawman, right? Um, In this context. So we've got that. So is that law or are we making law through, is that an argument about law? So I don't Mm want to be like, oh, we're being, we're, you know, it's like the, the hypnotoad from Futurama on our head making us think things. I'm not saying that about it, right? It's, yeah. just, it's an argument about the universe, and it invites us to try that argument on and think about it, to have the pleasures and the enjoyments of trying it on. And because of the power of music and visual imagery and narrative storytelling, the production, we get to yeah. feel it. Right. So it's not that we just think it in our heads. It's that the visual cuts, the music, the amplification, the scare, we get to feel that we've lived in that world with, you know, in our bodies. Mm-hmm. So so I love those shows. I watch those shows. I ask those questions about those shows. What do they invite us to feel about the universe we live in? If we really want to think about what are the laws of the world we live in, we might look to other genres. Um, that are less obvious like law is most powerful where it's not telling us it's law so rather than looking Mm -hmm. to where the film the the tv show tells us this is about law what about looking to those places where law is just operating as the water in the background in which other things happen like what are the series and the programs where we um, begin to hear the answers to the question what does it mean to be reasonable? What are the best interests of a child? What are obligations that we owe to each other? Yeah. So, you know, as we're thinking about law films, it can be fun to look also to the side at other things to to start to try and see the waters that we're swimming in, as well as just this focus on law as if it's primarily a matter of... Um, detective forensics in crime or what happens in a courtroom mm-hmm. particularly since we know most law never happened never no one gets to a courtroom yeah it's just it's just the exchange of documents <laughs> yeah, yeah or or we never get to documents because we know how to be lawful and the ways yeah. that we actually treat each other 
tell us a bit more about what our expectations are about what law actually is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, you, you, actually, you, you said a lot there that um, I'm, I'm interested in looking a little deeper into. Um, but I think going back even to uh, the true crime, true crime entertainment, I thought it was, it's really interesting how you mention it, how you describe it as almost an extension of the horror genre and just being this thing that you said just uh, injects right into the amygdala, right into those fear systems and that those really primal, those really primal senses that we have. And so from there, I'm wondering, do you think then that um, consumers of true crime um, entertainment are actually able to grasp the reality of what they're watching? Um, or is it still in some sense very much entertainment because i think even comparing it to horror movies i find there's two different types of horror movie watchers there's the people who see the ridiculousness of it all of you know spirits and ghosts and monsters and no matter how good the visual effects are can kind of laugh their way through it um and just realize it's not real and then there's other people me included uh, i'm definitely in the second group where um our disbelief is completely suspended and we're absolutely terrified <laughs> at everything we see just because we can't make that disconnect and so I, I wonder with true crime entertainment do you think that um consumers are able to really understand that what they're what they're taking in and what they're watching is real at least to, to some extent yeah you uh, these are all this is why uh, i think law and film is so fun to understand as a form of legal theory because you're asking mm -hmm. all the big theory questions like what yeah. is real what's not um i often without like throwing my you know brother-in-law eric under the bus right um uh, in the movie uh titanic you know when mm -hmm. the ship was going down uh eric got so visually seasick from the action of the boat that he <laughs> threw up in the movie theater right? <laughs> so um bit of a trauma for the people ahead of him as well, yeah, well yeah. but but then it asks me the question why do we assume it's not real so this is part of what makes um the world of art such a powerful site for persuasion because our visual field of our eyes are taking in data and the difference between you know i'm touching my camera here mm -hmm. the difference between um, an actual touch and a visual touch, our eyes don't process. Our eyes only process the visual stimuli. Mm -hmm. So you get one layer of sensory input from the eyeballs. You get other um, layers of sensory input from your ears. So when those musical pieces come and give you a big bang of experience, you can say it's not real, but it is real for your body. So your body has had um a visceral experience of something and then your brain is trying to you know narratively piece things together but it doesn't change the fact that your eyes and your ears are linked deeper into your affect system than than the brain is in that way so so i guess this question you pose do people know the difference yes we know the difference especially mm -hmm. as we talk about it but it's at our peril that we ignore that we've had a bodily experience. And then the question is, in what ways do we um, take up what we learn from those bodily experiences? It's Yeah, it's interesting when you mentioned that. I know when you first mentioned that, I was it started 
making me wonder if if the prevalence of, of, of like you're saying, these stories of threat and danger and fear and harm almost do have the effect of, uh, I struggle with this word, con- like conservatizing or like, or, or yeah, like, or just making the audiences, you know, more hostile and, and more fearful. And like you said, more receptive even to, um, to aggressive uses of state force and, and you know, policing like the, the idea of like oh the, the the streets are the streets are riddled with crime and we need to do something because you'd never know around any corner where there might be another serial killer um yeah like the, the, it kind of made me start wondering okay what are the how might this even be translating into the way we view our world politically um as opposed to you know just as just as content we've consumed yeah yeah mm-hmm there's um I just finished uh, reviewing like a someone's PhD that's coming out soon on uh, women in policing in BC, mm-hmm. and one of the pieces of data that uh, she's only worked with she's worked with women in leadership positions in policing. So there's the there's the people that she's been speaking with, but the data, for example, shows that for police in BC. There's 800 positions allocated that are designated as kind of gang unit related positions. Mm-hmm. There are, a, I want to say seven. I'm going to give you 11 because it's a bigger number, but I think the number was seven. <laughs> um, seven positions that are designated as domestic violence coordinators. Mm-hmm. So now within the police, we train up 800 to do gang material and 11 or seven to do domestic violence, but we know we had 114,000 instances of domestic violence in BC in the year she's looking at. Mm. So what's up then in terms of the focus on kind of creating these 800 gang positions and training people to be gang responsive means that you look for gangs in the world. You look for this kind of violence, you train for it, you see it, you deploy your resources in that way. Mm-hmm. I, I doubt that there were 114,000 um, gang. Yeah, I, I, I doubt that too. In that, yeah. in that way, right? Mm-hmm. But it justifies a different kind of budgetary expense if you say gang than if you say domestic violence, which is going to point you in the direction of a narrative that says, how do we support families? How do we um, address the causes of violence within intimate relations? How do we train people to know how to respond? How do we take a more health and holistic kind of legal response? If our focus and every story we see in the media that if you know if it bleeds, it leads, um, increases our impulse to say we need those policing resources, right? Mm-hmm. Like just Tom King, the novelist, would say, you know, be careful with the stories you tell, right? And mm-hmm. with the stories you consume, not because you shouldn't tell them, but we should be reflective around. Um, it's it's important to be reflective around how thinking about our stories might help us ensure that we don't take our entertainments directly to our political choices or our ideas about distributing resources or how mm-hmm. we build structures or institutions of law. There's many places for people to do this work. So, and stories can really give us um, a way into some big picture thinking. Yeah. yeah. 
there, there's something you mentioned before, and I think you even touched on it uh, in, in that in that answer, just talking about how a lot of times true crime entertainment can reinforce these ideas of um, who is who is the threat and who is at harm and who is at risk. And um, one 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 bit of research I've seen come up a lot when just looking into looking into true crime is the prevalence of uh, women as consumers of true crime entertainment. I think I saw a study where it said that about 73% of true crime podcast listeners are women. Um, and so I, I was wondering, do you, do you maybe have any thoughts on maybe why we see so many women, especially being interested uh, in, in true crime? Uh, there's some really, uh, so I haven't seen the, the data. It'd be real. I love, I, don't usually confess this to everyone, but my favorite course in university was actually multivariate data analysis. So I love oh. data. So fun. To, <laughs> yeah, so definitely to don't tell that QT. to your friends. Yeah. Don't tell everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but, Especially in law school. Um, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but uh, I'll share with you a kind of a side, a, a side, you know, side by side play. Here's another piece of data that's relevant to this data. Mm -hmm. So, Back in the day of video uh, blockbuster, you know, or video movies, it was very easy to kind of track um, video rentals. Mm -hmm. And so there's a great book by a woman named Carol Clover called uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. And it's a book that focuses just on the horror genre, on who rents the movies, the demographic of those people, and what we learned from asking about um, a place where there was some really gendered um, distribution. So it turned out at the time that the consumers for horror films were like in the 90s, like super high rental rates, way above, you know, evening out, even taking into account if your parents are, rent, you know, all that, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, um, was young men from like 14 to 23 or something. So mm -hmm. a huge demographic of, of male consumption of that genre. So as you were talking about, you know, women, I wonder if there's any literature out there also looking at if it's true that women are like, I mean, part of it might be, who knows, who knows what the rationales are, but I wonder if there's something as well here about proximity and distance in the genre. No, yeah, it, it, it's it's inter it's interesting that you gave that example of uh, of even with young men and and horror movies. I think even the study I was reading, uh, it's titled "Captured by True Crime: Why Are Women Drawn to Tales of Rape, Murder, and Serial Killers?" is from two thousand ten. Um, but I think something really interesting um, that was echoed in that in that paper is they found that generally men were more interested in violent genres. Um, so, like you said, like the chainsaw killers and almost like these comical depictions of violence. Whereas women were disproportionately drawn to, I don't know, for lack of a better term, more realistic um, forms of violence, like things that do we do see regularly day to day, whether it's like, you know, physical sexual abuse or, or intimate partner violence, um, those types of stories where are very real, whereas, you know, something like a, a, a guy with a chainsaw and a hockey mask running through the city isn't really something that you're going to regularly encounter. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting um, distinction there between the things that that, that men and women, at least, we were drawn to in, in that study. Yeah, there's a now that as you're saying that there's an interesting piece of data that I use in crim law that looks at like old data is sometimes helpful to help us see a pattern in mm -hmm. the present. But 
it was just like it's Glasgow in the 70s um, reported assaults to police, but the data is disaggregated in ways that make it really visible that men and women experience very, both experience lots of violence in their lives, but in very different ways. So men are most likely to be assaulted by someone who is not part of the family, who's a stranger to them in a public setting. Mm -hmm. So that is the way in which men experience violence. Women are most likely to experience violence from an intimate partner. Mm -hmm. So you've got violence and violence, but the the ways in which that violence is is experienced chain it, it it's going to require different responses, mm -hmm. and maybe different sets of fears, and maybe different sets of cultural products to, that help one process kind of the reality of the fears that we have about how we experience violence in our lives in different ways. Mm -hmm. so stories mm -hmm. maybe importantly tell us something about how we process fear. Right? Mm -hmm. I think, um, okay, kind of going on my, to, my, to my next question, um, we've talked a little bit, I think, about some of the dangers of true crime entertainment, like you said before, the stereotyping that can result from it or um, the sensationalizing. Um, but I, I was wondering, can true crime entertainment be a good thing? Um, specifically, can it be something, um, that is used to increase accountability in the justice system? Um, one, one example I think of recently, I don't know if you're following, um, the story of Adnan Syed. Uh, he was the subject of the first season of the serial podcast, um, that was really popular, um, maybe 10 years ago at this point, or at least five or six, seven years ago, um, where in the series they're investigating um, a murder that he'd been convicted of and, you know, some of the inconsistencies there and seeing whether or not he had actually um, done it. And it obviously blows up, becomes this huge podcast. And then just this last year, um, the District of Maryland, they revisited his, his case. They saw all these inconsistencies, the investigation, they vacated his sentence, um, which was a big story. And, I think a lot of people celebrated that as like, oh, look at this instance of this thing that we were all consuming as entertainment actually resulting in, you know, possibly an innocent man being freed. And I, I was wondering, is is that is that the kind of thing that we can look to as, uh, as an example of um, the benefits of this kind of true crime entertainment? Or is that really just a, an anomaly, which um, I guess maybe covers up the the actual problems with the genre? Yeah, I get, I I love the, I mean, there's, I always want to go back to words. So mm -hmm. I wonder sometimes if uh, like true crime entertainment, true crime, what's the difference between something that's designed to entertain us and something that's designed to educate us? That, that's a question so, I've had, the difference between reporting and entertainment, true crime reporting and entertainment. Yeah. Even. Mm -hmm. Between telling, discussing, revealing, um, interrogating. We've got a lot of verbs that might help us think about uh, kind of what's on the go. Is our assumption that if we learn, it's painful, and if it's fun, that it must be entertainment and not learning. So there's also, mm -hmm. like, how, how do we sort those things out as well as like the truthful how much of it is true and how much of it is changed in order to you know make it more entertaining and can our entertainments actually do the hard work of changing law so that we don't really have to 
do the hard work so we can just do it through entertainment like these are big these are big questions they're big questions um one piece that is sometimes interesting again to me is so if we think documentary versus fiction mm-hmm. so you know the, the podcast examples you're giving in some ways are like an attempt to to tell a story a truthful story through documentary so mm-hmm. and then if that documentary changes enough people's understanding that it leads to change that's one argument like it's why we do documentaries in order to kind of tell about yeah. the world in ways that will hopefully change people's hearts, change people's politics, change their actions. So the documentary versus entertainment, which is like a commercial commodity. Yeah. 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 I do think that makes a big difference. The, 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 the particular approach, like even something like serial, I think to, to its credit, it's a very journalistic and very responsibly reported um, podcast. And maybe it's not so surprising that it would have that result. Whereas maybe you contrast it with something, which was a good show, but like Tiger King, which was very much <laughs> just about like uh, the entertainment value and, and just seeing like, oh, look at these ridiculous people who also happen to be committing very serious crimes. Um, and, yeah. And I, yeah. yeah. And you don't really see the same the same results coming out of that. Um, one thing, I guess, kind of going back to something we, we what started this whole conversation, um, even with the Depp and Amber Heard trial, which we just saw in summer of 2022. Um, I know you talked about how, um, you know, the things like the editing, the cuts, the music that you see in a lot of true crime entertainment, that can kind of help um, the content maybe bypass our uh, our cortex and just, you know, like you said, I, I like that image of just get plugged straight into the amygdala, just straight into those primal systems. And so I was wondering in, in the cases where, you know, we're watching these ongoing, these ongoing legal, these ongoing um, legal dramas, like let's say in the Depp Heard situation or, or OJ Simpson back in the day, or um, I think the Kyle Rittenhouse trial of a, a few years ago, um, where you don't really see that same production value, but you still see um, all of that attention being, uh, being put on them. What, what makes those cases so compelling? yeah you know i think Mm -hmm. i think actually there were huge production values if i think about the experience of watching now because Mm -hmm. it wasn't that people just sat and watched what they watched was the redux what they watched was all the reporting on it what they watched Mm -hmm. was the twitter feed on it what they watched was the um clips analysis by Mm -hmm. the psycho by here's the truth person who can tell if someone's telling truth or lying by look at it look at how her eye twitched here like there was I bet, Mm -hmm. I'm not really a betting woman, I bet that people watched more of the um, segments that were selected from it than the full stream. And I'm very sure that those segments that were put out were watched with um, more, were watched more frequently than Mm -hmm. just the straight stream. Mm -hmm. So... I think that you also see then the the production and the reproduction through all of the material that came in after, not just mm-hmm. the straight feed, you know. And mm-hmm. even with the straight feed, these are actors. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just saying they're trained, they're trained presentation professionals as well, mm-hmm. doing their work of of curating. And the lawyers are curating through how they change the questions, through the direction you go in. 
Nobody's telling a full narrative story. Things are being told in fragment. Like we learn mm -hmm. a lot from, of course, it's not the same production value, but it, does that make it more true? Yeah, I guess I'm even wondering about what makes even the source the source material so compelling because I, I do agree with what you're saying about um, a lot of us were, were I definitely was consuming the clips and things just on Instagram and those were to to an extent produced, um, but I, yeah, I guess I'm even curious about even even the source material and what what made that that so compelling. Um, was it just the fact that it was real? Or, um, yeah. You know, um, okay, so my best friend in grad school, uh, mm -hmm. I was busy doing my PhD on childcare and tax treatment of women as business owners, and she was writing on slasher, stalker films, and um, and harassment law. <laughs> so mm -hmm. she had to watch all of this horror genre that she'd never seen in order to make sense of what she wanted to do. And so I spent a lot of time preferring to work on her thesis rather than mine. Uh, <laughs> tax is great. I don't want to undertake tax. But um, partly what she was, she was taking the movie Fatal Attraction uh, with Glenn Close as the stalker who, uh, so for you guys are too, you who are so young, that movie Fatal Attraction, when it came out, had uh, Glenn Close as the stalker stalking our Michael, oh, what's that guy's name? Michael Douglas. Hmm. So what we know about stalking as a phenomenon is that within our societies primarily women are stalked by former partners so we know mm -hmm. this to be true from the data but fatal attraction has a woman stalking a man um and around the time fatal attraction came out there was a very famous case where a man stalks and kills a famous woman actor actress so after fatal attraction comes out there's a huge public pressure to create the first anti-stalking legislation in the u.s mm -hmm. so so we have this interesting phenomenon where a movie that is completely not realistic to women's experiences of stalking, nonetheless creates the public pressure that then mm. creates legislation that addresses stalking. Might have been better legislation had the um, legislators not been so worried about the possibility that a one night stand with a crazy woman would lead them to have to possibly defend their family to the death right mm -hmm. so the the power of that cultural moment which was man bites dog yeah but the man bites dog was so powerfully it so powerfully spoke to legislators who were still at the time like primarily male that it did actually push the tipping point over into making legislative reform mm -hmm. but the the narrative story wasn't yeah. the conventional one yeah. So I wonder about that with some of these stories, and especially on the Depp Heard thing, you know, it's like a tale of, or constructed as like the lying woman who's mm -hmm. after the guy, and here's the example of why we need to be really careful about women's claims of violence, because look, mm -hmm. she's a liar. Mm -hmm. So so everything about that thing was designed to put us straight back into large-scale gender politics and kind of a pushback. Of course, men and women can be violent. Of course, men and women can do harm to each other. But why? So how this trial was like a perfect storm of reactionary politics hmm. um, against 
kind of a, whatever the cultural moment is in ways that allowed for for some pretty complicated social conversations being negotiated through a context that is like in some ways who cares about either of them yeah you know they're both yeah. pretty violent and really mm -hmm. it's telling us something about star culture and about really complicated gender politics and they're not the people where we want to design our questions about how to actually think about social harm and the ways people really are in the world but the displacement kind of mm -hmm, mm -hmm. created something you can look away from yeah but i think like looking forward into the future i'm wondering how how do you see the prevalence of uh, of of true crime entertainment affecting even day-to-day -day legal proceedings in the future um, i know there's some articles which i've which i've read which are um raise concerns about the ideas of jurors coming into the courtroom already with um with these preset notions of, of what the proceedings look like it's kind of even i guess even the whole you know the whole theory of why they won't allow law students to be jurors because you know we walk in there and we think we know what's going on it's like oh i've seen this before <laughs> um and I, I just wonder even in the way that 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 um you know day-to-day -day legal proceedings are conducted do you see the prevalence of of this type of media affecting that and and ultimately do you see that affecting it in in a good bad good bad way or, or or maybe not in a significant way at all yeah um, i think i like your question mm -hmm. um i am less worried myself about mm -hmm. whether or not these uh, the ways that the true crime dramas present the law will affect jurors than I am worried about our social narratives that are rooted mm. in racism, colonialism, patriarchy, trans-exclusionary, class, poverty-based narratives. Mm. I think those have an impact on jurors because those are the powerful narratives that we don't even know that we know until mm -hmm. we look at people and make decisions based on what we see about who is or isn't trustworthy who is or isn't more likely to do things so mm -hmm. you know when we saw like the gerald stanley trial mm -hmm. uh, the the barton trial those things are juror trials where jurors saw certain people as more worthy of our time and attention and other people as the world's natural victims or as the world's natural threatening people so I think those social narratives is not if we consume or don't consume certain stories, but how we talk to each other about what mm -hmm. we learn from what we consume so that we um, think about public legal education as part of changing the narratives and the stories so we can reinterrogate and ask about the worlds that we construct through our decisions like, you know, I just have to go back to some of the high profile police involved deaths we've seen over the years. Mm -hmm. If someone looks to the universe and sees a threat, then they'll act on the basis of it. But we can't easily change this without better conversations that encourage us to to really think about the world we make. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel pessimistic. I feel hopeful that humans as we are are social creatures and the more we remember to not just watch and listen but to talk with each other 
and to interrogate why we might want to change some of our pleasures or retake them up or shift them otherwise. I think mm -hmm. we are, um, you know, entities in the universe that have the capacity to have our stories help us build other worlds. Yeah, yeah. And I guess even the challenge for people creating that entertainment, especially if they're coming from, you know, maybe a, a good faith uh, place would be to to try create entertainment that, you know, encourages those discussions and those conversations rather than, you know, what we've seen of just entertainment that reinforces stereotypes and reinforces um, yeah. fears. Mm -hmm. And for us as viewers, I mean, maybe the thing isn't to tell people what they can and can't make, but maybe it's for us to engage in sustained campaigns of mockery and derision or, yeah. <laughs> or interrogation or yeah. questioning or putting it on the table why something does more than one thing at the same time where intention isn't the question it's social conversation thanks for listening to this week's episode of starring decisis Starring Decisis is made possible by the Appeal Law Journal and CFUV 101.9 FM. Take care. Much love.